1: This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook, one of New Zealand rugby's most famous faces. We're going to get some insight into what makes the world's most successful international sporting team tick and the secrets to success and peak performance year after year. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, protecting their people and projects through adaptability and proactive safety. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you're looking to become a better leader in business or sport or even at home with the family, this podcast is for you. Justin Marshall made his All Blacks taboo as a 22-year-old against France in 1995 and went on to play 81 tests, scoring 24 tries in the famous black jersey. His 11-year international career included the 99 and 03 World Cups as well as the honour of captaining his country. He played more than 100 games for the Crusaders and after his international retirement, Marshy spent six years playing in Europe. He's now regarded as one of the world's best expert commentators with Sky Sport in New Zealand.
2: Mertens. Again, the back kick through. Lomu and tune. Well claimed by Lomu. Marshall, no one ahead. He has to have a go. Oh, that's amazing. Getting a chance to stretch his legs now, Marshall into the gap. He's got players in support. He may not need them. Justin Marshall, what a terrific try! Welcome back to the All Blacks.
1: Just some of the highlights from a storied career. Justin Marshall, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook.
2: Yes, very nice to be on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a crazy world we're living in at the moment, and I do appreciate your time. We're talking leadership on the podcast today. My one taste of your leadership, and I seem to remember a court session at the 2015 Rugby World Cup in London. That was quite some leadership on that occasion, and the motto of no man is left behind is is probably fairly apt on that occasion.
2: (laughs) It certainly is, and... Fair play to you for remembering it because that was quite a heavy night, wasn't it? <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I, I think sort of my my attitude is like it was with rugby that that when you are away and um, you're in, you're in a different environment um, with with people uh, that perhaps you see a lot of, but don't see a lot of them socially. There's no point in locking yourself in your hotel room and being insular and um, you know staring at the four walls and there or watching television. You might as well get out and about and, and enjoy each other's company and it was nice at the Rugby World Cup that we know you get, we knew the guys um, through TV and all of the networks really, really well um, and it's like well we're all here, why don't we all get together and, and have a bit of fun, I think we had some curry nights and like you said, court sessions and um, you know, th- those sorts of things are, are important because just like a team environment, you, you want to make sure that you know, there is no man left behind, there is nobody sitting in their hotel room, bored shitless and and. and, and um, really struggling uh, when they can be out socializing, having some dinner, catching up and and making time pass a lot easier um, you are uh, great mates with uh, with one of australia 's
1: great rugby leaders uh, in George Gregan and um, you know you were fierce rivals on the field, but you 've turned out to be great mates. What do you observe about his uh,
2: leadership, or what did you observe about his leadership on the field? just uh, uh, leadership born out of competitiveness. You know, that, that determination to win, to succeed, uh, to never be beaten either by his opposite or, or the opposition team. And, and when, when players see that in a person, they see their, their chest puffed out, their um, their, their chin out and, and their head up high, not down, because it's an attitude of never giving up. And, and even through adversity, when, when you haven't started the game well or you have and then the opposition are back in it and, you know, some players can... Lose your confidence, or feel that it's it's just not going to be their day. You know, George was never that way. He, he would fight right up until the last whistle, even if it's an impossibility to win the game. He's still trying to win it, uh, you know. So, you know that competitiveness, I think, um, is is born out of also leadership. When players recognise that, they can see that, uh, and, and what he wants to do is when he's that competitive, he wants other players to be the same way to never give up, to to keep working hard to to find a way through problems in the game. And, you know, that, that was one thing that I noticed. I sort of always compare him to um, Jost van de Vestasen, uh you know, the, the, the late great uh, nine from South Africa, where I played a lot of rugby against George and Just, Two outstanding players with impeccable records for their countries, probably arguably the best in their position uh, in history. And they asked me the difference between the two of them. And Just was uh, a bit of a freak. You know, good consistent player, but he was able to flip a game in a moment, do something spectacular. Uh, you know, a chip kick over the top, gather, beat a player, and all of a sudden just spark something from nowhere. Um, the difference between him and George was that every now and then he would have an off day, or he'd have sixty or seventy minutes of quite an average performance, and then he would do something spectacular. Every time George went out there, he got eighty minutes of consistency, same competitive. Um, absolutely same skill sets, levels, uh, you know, the, the, it never faded. You, you never really had, saw him have a, a very off day. So, you know, it, while some players can drift, he never drifted. You know, 139 tests it was uh, that he played, he, he never buttoned off and, and he never dropped his performance. That would have hurt him too much.
1: We all know that he was yappy as well. Do you recall? No. <laughs> was he? Do you recall the day... <laughs> And I've I've read about this, but I haven't heard you talk about this. The, the day that he, he broke you with his with his oh, yeah. with his yap. Yeah. Do you
2: remember that game? Yeah, I do remember that game. Yeah, and look, I, I knew what George was basically uh, trying to do within the game, which was you know you get you needle away, get under people's skin. Uh, he wasn't going to do it physically. Well, every now and then I saw him get the odd filthy shot in that he has a bit of a smile about. And I said. <laughs> Remember that knee you put on the throat of Josh Kronfeld that time? He, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was an accident. Someone pushed me. <laughs> but in, in general terms, um, you know, he, he, he basically was educating the referee. So he was going to a breakdown and, and letting the referee know that somebody was offside or was on the wrong side of the ruck or wasn't releasing the ball or was a tackled player um, or had knocked it on, whatever it might be. He's basically commentating the game as he gets to a breakdown. And lots of players would just, you know, react and then they would listen to him as well. And so they would obviously peel out of the way when they were quite obviously onside. But yet, he, because he's saying it, <laughs> th- th- they, they are reacting to what he's saying and thinking, oh, maybe I am offside and, and go back onside or whatever it might be. So, you know, he was very su- uh, successful in doing that. And also the referees listened a lot as well um, when you've got him continue to do that. But... I sort of saw it for what it was, and, and what he's after is a reaction, um, either from the referee or from the player. And, yeah, it took me a very, very long time to, to get to the point, as you mentioned, where I did react, because I knew that that's the last thing that you want to do, because that's just going to encourage him. And, yeah, it was a test match in Wellington. It was a horrible day, pissing down with rain. Um, and just one of those games where it's difficult, forward-orientated, and... and and a tough old grind we, we were winning reasonably comfortable but um, comfortably but it was still a hard old graft and George was at his very best because on a day like that when the game's quite tight you know there's lots of breakdowns there's lots of mistakes and in, in that area and he was going ham- he's just going hammer and tongs hammer and tongs and I, I got to the point where I'd had a, had enough and this is after about playing him for about seven or eight years even through age group and I was wet, damp, the hair was a mess and flat. And I just wasn't in a good space. That. I hated <laughs> it. Mud on my face, you know. Sock, <laughs> socks were down because I couldn't keep them up with my tape. Just looking a disgrace. And he, he, he said something at the breakdown. And I just sort of spun around and got up and stared at him straight in the face. And I just said to him, um, for, for God's sakes, George, would you just shut the F up? And uh, he sort of looked at me. His eyes went... Bold and completely open, and straight away he said, Marshy, what's wrong? Oh, <laughs> boys, look at Marshy, he's not very happy. Oh, look, he's throwing his toys out of the cot. Oh, poor little Marshy. Oh, you're having a big, you're having a bad day, mate. You're having a bad day. And I knew at that moment, after all that time of staying patient and composed, that I'd had one little microsecond of reacting that he was going to dine out of it, and he did. So it was a he's, bit of a shame.
1: He was in. Can we just talk? Um, talk more widely about uh this, the fabled all blacks culture and, and it's funny because a lot of our guys on our side of this go oh, yeah we know you clean the change rooms you mm-hmm. know we know you sweep the change rooms all that sort of stuff yeah. um wh- wh- what is it about uh the all blacks culture that has helped enable uh this long period of sustained success and uh, you know clearly talent has a fair bit to do with that
2: but but culturally what wh- what is it I think the, the the culture that the All Blacks um, really adhere to, and, and I agree with you, that there, there is the not leaving any stone unturned and not being bigger than the game. And I think that's important. Um, that the, the game makes you who you are, and and you know it is things like making sure that you, you you everybody pulls their weight. You know, you mentioned the changing rooms Yes, That's something the All Blacks do, but also when they when they're on a travel day, no one's exempt. So. Steve Hansen when it was his day he was shifting all the, the team bags and suitcases and and lining them up at the airport and tag bag tagging them and so everybody has a role and and nobody's um, unable to be bigger than the game to not do that so you know it's a big part of it and you know that's really important that, that the game comes first but I think the second part of it with the All Blacks is our appreciation of history the thing that you were told when you when you walk into that environment for the first time and then are reminded of it every day is that there's a lot of um blood sweat guts um the odd tear that has gone before you to to create this impeccable record that the all blacks have and if you're operating at a certain success rate uh you know you don't want that success rate to drop in the year that you're an all black um and secondly it was very. I kept in the All Blacks and, uh, and um, on the end of year tour in, in 1997, and I was a bit nervous about it. But the easiest speeches for me to make pre game or during the week were the ones, the two ones when we played um, Ireland and uh, Wales, um, because at that stage we'd never lost to Ireland, and we hadn't lost to Wales, and I think it was fifty something years. And so it was pretty simple for me. It was like, boys, this is our history. There's been a lot of shit gone before us to preserve that. Ireland have never, ever beaten us. It's not happening on our watch. It's not happening. No matter what they do, we walk off that field and we protect our history. And, and, and you can just see the players recognise, you know, way back into the, the 1900s, what had gone to formulate that history. A ball over felt in Buenos Aires. Los Pumas, Moi bueno, wow. they win against the All
1: Blacks. Wow, piece of history. We've witnessed history here today, Vanquist. Incredible effort. We spoke about they hadn't played in 402 days. First game of 2020. Were they going to run out of energy? Were they going to run out of steam? No, they just got better and better. They made one handling error throughout 80 minutes. It was such a polished and accurate performance, balanced with beautiful passion and precision. Outstanding, Andrew. I I just don't know how to sum it up. There was heart, there was courage, there was physicality and bravery. They've been absolutely fantastic today. The Pumas, absolutely well earned. You cannot help but take your hat off today. Well, that right there is the result, sort of result, you're talking about. A couple of your old mates, George Gregan and, and Andrew Mertens, in commentary. 2020 in Sydney, Argentina's first ever win over New Zealand. Now, you could see on that day, I guess, what it meant to Argentina, but you could also see the significance of that loss on the faces of the All Blacks. You
2: know, there's a lot of hard work gone into never being defeated by them and in, a, in an instant it's gone. And you wake up the next morning as an All Black and, and thankfully you know, it never happened to me. I wouldn't imagine what it's like. After a game you can see they're all standing around. They're a little bit shell-shocked, um, but you know, you've know, you been through a battle. Uh, you're in the changing rooms and there's a bit of shit said and that happens and then you do your recovery and then you go back to the hotel and think about you know, having a couple of beers. It's the next morning when you wake up that you realise that it's gone. You it, can't get it back. You can't get it back, and unfortunately, you're going to be a quiz question in the future. You know, which which the uh, which is a enigma no player or no team wants to have. Which is, you know, I know it's one now in 2016 when we first lost to Ireland. Who was the starting team? And people go, oh yeah, and they go through the team, and I think there's a real. Uh, point of, uh, of contention there that people don't get i think we started jerome kano at lock in that game against Ireland because Brody retallick was out but anyway which people get stumped on but all of a sudden yeah all of a sudden you become you have that um negativity of history against against you as an all black and that is a big part of the all black success is is protecting our history and preserving that and um you know, it's harder to do and harder to motivate against teams that beat us more regularly, like, for example, Australia and, and England and South Africa, um, and, and, and harder to dive into that history to motivate players. But there's always that um, overall and a lifetime history to, to gravitate towards, and you never want to be on the negative side of that.
1: You would have been uh, part of teams, I imagine, you know, when you finished your career in Europe or whether it be um, you know, with the Crusaders in Canterbury and, and also with the All Blacks. Teams that maybe you know, wavered on, on that cultural side of things that you know, didn't quite do things right, didn't respect the culture. How do, you, how do you turn things around when things aren't going quite right and maybe there's some guys sort of slipping off the ship there?
2: Yeah, well, that's, that's a standards thing and, and that's... Um what happens when you get those sorts of situations and that drift is it doesn't tend to just be a drift in the game, it tends to be a drift in the week and um, you know the the other thing that the All Blacks really um, work towards which is something that um, really resonated with me and you know I wasn't a great guy for when the psychologists and the eye coaches come in yes eye coach, we had, we had this lady <laughs> who came in and was uh, had us in a room and teaching us about peripheral vision and all that sort of crap, and I was just like, oh, my God. And then you get the, you know, the, the psychological side of it. So this is all the, the the process of moving into professionalism and trying to find an edge, um, you know, and, and and they're telling you to note down and, you know, put down 10 points on what you're going to do for the week and what you're going to do for the game and how you're going to achieve those and tick the box. And, you know, have you when you walk into the changing room, have you... Have you done those things that you would usually do? Like Jesus, I'd put my bag down, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pull my uh, my boots out for first. You know, I'm not, I'm not Rafa Nadal, where you know you're moving your bottles around to within a, a micro millimeter. So for me, um, you know, it, it was about that that perfection. Uh, that 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 that's not just a game thing. That's a training thing. Um, and what, what what I what, what I really thought about during a week was trying to find that perfect training run that would lead to playing the perfect game. Mm. You know, that, that absolutely um, uh, unrepeated perfect game that everything that you would imagine and dream about going into the game happens. And, and seeking that sort of perfection keeps your, your level at a level where you won't have that, that drop off and that fade in performance. And I certainly think that uh, that happens a lot in players and teams in weeks where, particularly I found it in France, where before we, if we had to play away, we were almost defeated before we went because the French felt that the, it's always difficult going to somewhere like Toulon where they're going to have a full stadium and they're going to do their pickle pickle, I think it was, big chant before the game. The referee's going to be biased as shit, so you're up against um, you know that, that 16th man. Uh, and it was all just too difficult. And, and their attitude showed that, you know, very deflated. Um, if a couple of things went right, you kind of got into the game. But if they didn't go right, a team that you could beat at home, you could lose by 50 points to. Mm. And that just gave me the shits. I hated it. I absolutely hated that attitude. To me, my attitude was, this is the perfect storm. they got a full stadium with all their crowd. The referee's going to be against us. Just go there and stick it to them. Mm. And, you know, walk off that field with your head held high and they're all going home, crying into their beers. And it's not been the day that they thought it would be. And they just didn't have an attitude like that, which I, I really, really struggled with. And there was elements of that um, around some of the other clubs that I was involved with as well. Uh, but when you get to that top echelon, you, you, you again, you see teams like um, like the Crusaders, like some of the bigger teams in Europe uh, that, that have good history behind them. They have real good uh, belief in... Their environment and have a good culture, uh, you won't see that uh, mediocre training week that you would see in other teams. That leads to a really mediocre game because it's just not tolerated. No, it's not tolerated, and and that's infect that, that's that's a that's an infectious thing as well. That you know the that the senior members, um, if they see a younger player coming in taking the piss during the week, they just won't tolerate it. They'll pull them out and they'll say, and 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 if you get the response of it's just a training run, it's like. You'll do it in a game, and 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 we're not about that, mm, and mm. and it's that simple. And they sort of look at you as if you're being too sort of anal about the whole situation, but it's not that. It's like if you if you switch off for that microsecond in a game in a, a training, when that pressure comes on you in a game, which is even more, you'll drop that you'll drop the ball three times. Yeah. So that, that that's kind of what I find. Um, you mentioned Yusuf al and and
1: we talked about. George give me some of the other great leaders you've played
2: with or or against but also what made them great yeah when I first came in my all black captain was Sean Fitzpatrick and everybody knows um, particularly in Australia how competitive Fitz he was uh, you know he never he, he never wanted anybody to get um, anything over him similar to George, his opposition player um, or, or the opposition team and uh, he was just a great player for never, never say die attitude. You know, like um, regardless of what was against us, um, I've never seen probably v- that more in my career a guy that uh, just loved the jersey that much. Mm. You know, who who would would do absolutely. He would die in the thing to you know to get a result or to to get a victory. And when things were going a little wobbly, he would recognise that. And, um, you know, whether he did it through niggle, because that was back in the day where you could get away with a little bit of unseen niggle yep. um, at the breakdown where he would try and rattle somebody to win a penalty. You know, he would do that, um, you know, stand on someone's ankle and they'd react and get up and give him a, you know, punch him in the face and he wouldn't react and we'd win the penalty and change the momentum of the game that way. You know, obviously he changed the way that hookers played by standing out in the wing. Um <laughs> And, 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 you know, he, he was brilliant like that. And, and I think he's probably the first captain I came across that felt that much love for the jersey and what he was doing. Um, you and know, you want to
1: follow someone like that, don't you? Yeah, you like do. You, yeah.
2: yeah, And I played quite a lot under Richie as well, um, different type of a leader. Um, you know, he just was just gutsy and um, probably wasn't a big speaker, same as Tana Umanga wasn't either. He was more about um, going out there and, and showing... Showing the way forward, and, and players would follow guys like that. They had they had just this uh, respect about them, um, but they didn't really do a lot of it by words. They, they had good players and leaders around them. Um, lots of good teams have uh, great leaders like that around them, uh, and you know they're, they're very good at um, motivating uh, the players within without the captain having to do it. Uh, you know, I, I, I played with quite a few. Um, Good captains overseas. Uh, it's pretty hard when you spend the majority of your time in in environments uh, in New Zealand. And then I, I did switch clubs quite a bit when I was overseas, but played in Barbarians and saw leadership qualities of many great many great players and what they bring to teams, you know, and, and their the different um, idiosyncrasies that they have that that you used to play against, and all of a sudden you've got them as a weapon on your side w- was great, you know, playing with guys like Shane Williams and. Um, You know, uh, I always mention Justin Harrison, who I just couldn't stand um, Goog, You know, he was (laughs) such a niggly player and, you know, like just a pain in the ass. And then I actually got to play with him in the Barbarians and and spend a week with him. And he's just a champion bloke and and, and also got to see what uh, it was like to have him on our side. You know, when players are into a breakdown and he's approaching that breakdown, they've got one eye on what they're doing, but they've also got a one eye on him because he's going to come in and remove you yeah. any way he can. So, you know, those those types of um, individual skills, uh, seeing those players in, in, in within your side, you know, I played um, with, with Matt Gitto as well and um, I, was, I was really uh, impressed with his knowledge of the game uh, and, and, and what he, he understood, um, tactically and, and appreciated. He was him a real play. he was a real setter of standards yeah. too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, very, very, well, very motivated trainer. Um, and yeah, he was very much about standards. You know, if a, pa- a pass was on the shoulder, you know, it used to get, you know, get him a little bit, and he'd he'd let the, the person know that he doesn't want that pass on the shoulder.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Just to finish off with the, the haka, and I've I've heard you speak about this before, and um, it, it it's something that fascinates all Australians. I think that the, the haka, and, and obviously its meaning, and we're now doing the you know the welcome to country. I think we're making some strides towards recognising our history as well. But but when you're the, the little white kid um, <laughs> yeah. in, in the middle of uh, of the haka. Mm where do you stand? Like, did you, you do classes when you first get into the squad? Where, you know, how do you know where to stand? You know, all, all that sort of stuff. Like, demystify all of that.
2: Yeah, like, I think, obviously, when you talk to former players uh, that, that have been through the decades, and, and when you look at the history and see it from the early 1900s, when the All Blacks um, were doing the Haka through until probably, the, I guess, the end of the 80s, um, or middle, mid-80s, and you talk to Australian players that, that face the haka, they they kind of understood it, but it was a it was a bit of a token gesture, I think. You know, we appreciated and knew that this was a very important part of our history, for, uh, our Maori history, uh, and that was why the All Blacks adopted the haka as um, respecting that history and respecting our heritage and 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 all all of uh, what what New Zealand's history entails. Uh, it probably wasn't. And and they they will say, yeah, they they stood against the haka. And oh, I was talking to Campo during the week, and he said, geez, when I used to stare across at Stu Wilson doing the haka, he said there was a bit of slapping going on, but it didn't look fierce and didn't intimidate me. So <laughs> um, it was pretty, for want of a better way of saying, a bit of it was um, just going through the motions. Um, I think uh, Wayne Buck Shelford, when, when he became All Black Captain, um, he he's he's a very... Um, proud mouldy, and he felt that we weren't doing it the justice it deserved and I certainly think when he started leading the haka we saw a real change in the way that the formation for a start off the horseshoe started and uh, he did it with a lot more intent Um, and so for me when I came in you know we went through Buck Shelford and then he was followed on by Zinzan Brook who was equally the same felt the same way about it who was our leader of the haka. So when I came into the All Blacks, um, it, was, it was starting to transform. So yes, there was meetings, and yes, there was a, 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 um, um, a meeting which Zinni led, which for all of the All Blacks um, in the room, and, and no coaches, it was only the players, um, he explained the words, what the meaning, the significance of it, the actions, how we're going to do it, we'd sit there and practice it. And I learned a very valuable lesson um, early. Because he said, OK, out of all your new All Blacks, this is my first year, my first, second day I'd walked into the, the All Black environment. And he said, righty out of all you new guys, and I think, because we are going on a big end of your tour, so there was about 13 or 12 new All Blacks, because we are doing midweek games as well, so it was a big squad. And he said, how many of you um, know the Haka? Because he gave us the big speech, explained it all. And um, nobody put up their hands, um, apart from uh, me and Mertz and he went all right okay so you guys know it oh well you can um, get up and do it in front of the team and I looked at Mertz and he looked at me and I went oh no 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 because it was one of those environments where you're just intimidated to be in the room and now all of a sudden you were faced with this situation of me I'm staring at guys that you know, if we were my idols, you know, like, not only Zinny, there was Michael Jones, you know, there was Frank Bunce and Walter Little, J- Jonah Lomu was in the room, um, it was just like, oh my God, I've really stuffed this up, and I had to try and get <laughs> up, and then it only took 30 seconds as any to say, hey, you guys, you don't know how to do this, you're taking the piss, sit back down and learn your lesson very quickly, and so we did, um, yeah, I certainly think that that was a change in, in the formula that, that uh, the All blacks now do that they've got their second hacker I was there when they when they introduced that um, we, we bought it in just prior to the Lions in 2005. We didn't use it for the Lions, but it was there um, but certainly with the advent of professionalism it's taken on a bit more of a dramatic mm. uh, sort of effect with the with the microphones and the television cameras zooming right in on the faces and and all of that but again that was. I was there for that at the turn of sort of millennium when Adidas took over sponsorship of the All Blacks. They felt that the Haka, um, you know, they wanted to expose it and for them to expose it, the New Zealand Rugby Union, and when I mean expose it, they wanted to put it in their ads, you know, with the Adidas jersey. They they really wanted it to, to be a big part of their sponsorship. The New Zealand Rugby Union, oh shit, okay, well we, we really need to get um, the players really schooled up on it, so and yeah r- around sort of I think it was two thousand when Adidas took over we we went into even more depth and got um moldy uh chiefs coming in and uh, taking us through the actions and and that 's when it really st- went into a different stratosphere, which you see it as now
1: and so who did you use to stand <laughs> next to
2: I used to stand beside Mertz or christian cullen um, because like you say. We're probably not the most fearsome-looking blokes, and uh, what the, what I found out was that the, that the opposition, um, you know, they they would gravitate towards players that they didn't think were so fierce. So they're not going to be staring at Jonah or Zinzan Brook <laughs> or anything like that. Um, so yeah, if I if I stood in that vicinity, I knew that, um, that there'd be no eyes on me, and and that would certainly help. But uh, I sort of found that if tactically that I, I'd sort of basically got it wrong because that put me in the general vicinity of it and because of that it felt like eyeballs were on me, whereas they were probably just staring at Mertz or Cully. They were on me as well. So I became a victim after that. It didn't matter where <laughs> I where I hid in the hacker. They followed me.
1: So so where but where are
2: you looking? When you do it, are you are you locking eyes with, with the opposition? I, I, I never used to lock eyes with one person in particular. Some players say that they used to try and find their opposite number. Um, some said that they just felt there was somebody that they wanted to uh, feel that they could intimidate um before a game um you know I've always said and and and, and you know this is this is facts as far as I'm concerned that that huckers have no influence on the game so how you can in- intimidate somebody by doing a hacker staring at them and the ball hasn't even been kicked off I've no idea um you know I've, I've been involved in good hackers and, and bad hackers, you know and felt like I was slightly out of time and so it was a bad hacker and you know, five minutes later we've kicked off and we've started the game on fire. I've been involved in good hackers. Felt like I was kind of in rhythm and everybody sort of did a good hacker and everyone jumped at the same time. Back in the days when you used to jump, and we're all in rhythm and we started the game terribly. So it has no effect on what happens three, four, five minutes later when the ball actually gets kicked off.
1: And the last question, closer to home, uh, your young fella, as I understand it, not terribly into his rugby, more a cricketer.
2: Yeah, he he enjoys his cricket. In fact, the the boys, um, my my two boys, I've got two boys and a girl, uh, but the boys in particular really changed their mindset when they got back to New Zealand because when when we were overseas, they were football because it was everywhere over yeah. there. As you know, you've been there, and you you can't move over there without a round ball. So they they were they were playing quite a lot of football when they by the time they arrived back in New Zealand and sort of rugby. They had played a little bit in the UK, but they hadn't played it that much. And in France, it was a bit difficult with the language. They'd, they'd got involved, but they weren't overly enthused about it. So when they got back to New Zealand, they, they got more back into the, that type of mainstream cricket, rugby, um, sport uh, philosophy of that's what what we play. And they, they drifted away from, from football after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So they got back into that. But yeah, um, yeah the oldest one found that he got... Um sort of a provincial Otago Academy uh, but he's gone off it a little bit because his rugby's taken off so um, he's Gosh. actually managed to grab himself a scholarship uh, up in, in Lincoln under the under the um, umbrella of the Crusaders uh, franchise so I think he's pretty excited by that and, and it's quite weird I I know that um, well for those for those people this is a good opportunity given that it's the last question for me to pump my own tires. Um, th- those that don't didn't know that I, I was actually re- dead keen on my cricket as well, and I played a lot against Jeff Wilson when I was younger, who went on to play would be our I think our, he'll be our last dual international quite possibly, uh, and and I really enjoyed it, and um, I was reasonably successful at it, but there's a point in time where um, it's all too consuming that I got to a point where I sort of had to make a choice between rugby and cricket. And surprisingly, yeah, I I look through the eyes of my son now who's got to that same point, and when I thought that he would probably gravitate towards cricket, he sort of said, you know what, I want to really get stuck into my rugby this year and and really put some time into it, and he started going to the gym, and and, um, he's drifted away from cricket. Yeah, he got to the same point that I got to where it was um, make make your choice of where you want to go because time demands that. You can't put the, the amount of time... Um, in, into both. In fact, interestingly enough, the last per- when we went to have a look at Lincoln University in Christchurch, the last person that they allowed to basically do a little bit of a dual scholarship was Ge- Geordie Barrett. Yeah, right. So he went there under rugby, but he never wanted to give up his cricket. And he's, he's a bloody good cricketer, actually. Uh, and, um, and he still wants to play um, cricket when he can. Uh, he performed really well. They have an annual game between the All Blacks and uh, okay. a mixed... Between All Blacks and uh, former New Zealand cricketers, and the odd celeb, and uh, the Barrett boys are pretty good. Bloody play- and Geordie's a bit of a demon fast bowler and a pretty good bat.
1: I think uh, I think those boys would be in the category of being pretty good at whatever they they turn their hand yeah, right. to. Yeah. And, Marcia, if there is uh, another young Marshall coming along, I'm sure it'll be good news for uh, for New Zealand rugby if he does
2: follow in your footsteps. Um, terrific to catch up. Thanks so much for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Oh, thanks for having me, Nick. It's great to catch up with you as well, and um, hopefully people have enjoyed what I've had to say.
1: Always good fun catching up with Justin Marshall. There he is with some insight into the All Blacks culture and standards. Don't think for a moment, though, that New Zealand has a mortgage on culture and standards, but their sustained success for so many years is proof. They're doing a lot right off the field as well as on. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss a moment. Love you to give us a five-star rating, leave a review and word of mouth's important. If you liked it, tell a friend. If you didn't, maybe don't mention it. I'm Nick McArdle. Join me next time on the Playmakers Playbook.
0: Hold up.